Good morning. Today we're reading from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate the water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and gathered the waters, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said... Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on earth to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished all the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Thanks so much, Candice. Well, today we uh, come to the first page of the Bible and immediately you know we've entered into the middle of a controversy. There's, there's a contemporary debate that we launch right into the centre of at this stage. It's a debate about creation and evolution. Uh, how old is the earth? Uh, one of the children said, what happened in the beginning? You know, it's that sort of question that gets raised. Are we talking about six 24-hour days? And I'm aware that as I start first page of the Bible, there's a room of people all hitting this from different directions. There'll be some of you here who are just desperately hoping that what I will do is refute modern scientific views about the origins of the earth. You're looking for me to nail that one. Some in the room will be hoping that what I do is integrate what the Bible has to say with modern science in a seamless sort of fashion that equips you to be able to explain all those sort of questions. And some of you here today may not be followers uh, of the Lord Jesus at this point. And one of your reasons will be uh, because your suppositions, as you come to thinking about the origins of the earth, do not allow for a creator God. So if that's what the Bible says, you can't believe it. And that's a stumbling block for you to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all hit this chapter from very different directions. Now... There's nothing wrong with asking the question about the interaction between the Bible and science. Nothing wrong with that question. However, what I want to say is I think it's totally misplaced. It's the wrong question to ask when you come to Genesis 1. I'm not trying to give you a hard time if that's your big question. But what I'm saying is it's not the big question you ought to be asking. Let me um, try and use an analogy uh, to explain what I'm saying. I want you to imagine that you are a uh, first-year medical student at Adelaide University. So you've come into Adelaide University and you're heading up for your first semester exam on anatomy. And the professor who teaches this course explains to you in one of the last lectures that for the first time in the history of the medical school at Adelaide University, you are going to be allowed to bring in one textbook uh, for this exam on anatomy. And the 
you know, the student body cheers, you know, fancy, you know, the university allowing this possibility, you know, the textbook for anatomy. All the students, you know, 173 students line up to go in for this anatomy exam on the day. You've got, everyone's got their, you know, 1,450-page textbook that's recommended on anatomy stuck under their arm with all the answers in it. And you notice your friend uh, across the room about to go on this exam and he doesn't have the textbook. He has another book in his hand. And uh, you, in a worried way, uh, rush up to this person because you think they're making a stupid <laughs> mistake and uh, you, you discover uh, that the book they're holding is this book, right? The Australian Women's Weekly Cookbook, right? And you think, what an idiot, you know, like... Imagine taking this book into the exam. And of course you say, don't you know, we can take, well, there's a textbook you should have, not the Women's Weekly Cookbook. And your friend looks at you with this sort of insightful, all-knowing, Yoda-type stare and says, you are what you eat. Right? Right? Now... You can sort of get that there's a tangential connection, you know. Luckily, there is a sense in which you are what you eat. You know, what you eat affects your anatomy. You know, I get that, but it'd be a pretty stupid thing to do, right? Okay. We come here to the early chapter, the first chapter of Genesis. Can I say it is not written to answer questions raised by modern science? That's not why it's here. It has been written to answer much more important questions, much more profound questions that go to the heart of what it means to live in this world. Questions like, who is God? Who are we? And what is our purpose as people? What's the world like? Uh, how do we understand it? What's our relationship with, with God? and the world? How should we think in terms of the way in which that works? Why is the world such a strange place to live in? You know, a world that is extraordinarily beautiful and full of wonder and grace and glory and yet a place of tragic suffering and hatefulness and evil. Why is the world like that? Friends, they're the they're the questions at the heart of what it means to exist and they are the questions that these early chapters of God's word focus on. So friends, rather than impose our questions on the Bible, what we're going to do for three weeks is turn our attention to Genesis chapter 1 from chapter 1 verse 1 to chapter 2 verse 3. It's the first section in Genesis and we're going to allow God to search us with his questions and provide his answers to those profound issues about what it means to live in this world. We're going to hear what God says to us. There's an outline you can follow if that's a helpful thing to you. It'd be great to have your Bible open. Uh, but why don't I just pray as we launch into this this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you. You speak to us. You speak to us of profound things, uh, deep things, uh, things that go to the very heart of what it means to exist in this world, who we are, who you are. Uh, how the, the relationships tie together. And we pray that you'll give us an openness of mind and heart to hear you speak to us, uh, that it will stir us to think about what it means to live in your world and we might be able to do that faithfully.
And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What is your first impression? Uh, you probably heard Genesis 1 read before, but as we heard it this morning, uh, how did you feel when that long chapter was read? Uh, uh, did you lose focus at different points? Did you... Genesis chapter 1 is an extraordinarily sophisticated work of literature. Now, that might not be your first impression. Uh, if you were writing the great novel of the 21st century, would you start off with these words? In the beginning. You know, maybe not. You know, uh, that's where Genesis 1 starts. And maybe as you listened, you thought, it feels a bit repetitious, you know, sort of formulaic, a bit boring, maybe even a bit childish. But can I say it's far from being childish, even though it is simple and a child can understand it. I want to just highlight a few of the, the features just to show how carefully crafted this first part of the Bible is and the way in which that crafting contributes towards the core message of this part of the Bible. Literature that's simple but not simplistic. Did you hear the way in which the, the number seven was used over and over and over again? In the Bible, and particularly this part of the Bible, uh, seven points to the whole uh, nature of wholeness, that is completeness or perfection, the, the ideal. And what we have in this chapter are seven days. Uh, the first sentence has seven words in the original Hebrew language. The second sentence has 14 Hebrew words. If you're good at your times table, you can follow where I'm going here. You know, that is, it's carefully constructed in this way. Uh, and God made seven times. It was so, seven times. It was good, seven times. Uh, the structure is carefully formed for each day. Uh, go to day one. There's the command from God. Verse three, let there be light. Uh, second stage, fulfilment. Verse three, and there was light. Third stage, there's an explanation or an elaboration. Verse four, the light was good. And then at the end of each day, you have that day formula, the fourth stage, verse 5. There was evening, there was morning, there was the first day. Now, as you step back from Genesis chapter 1, if I asked you to come up with one word that captures the big idea of this chapter, what word would that be? Just one word. I gave you one word. What would it be? But I want you to do three seconds each. This doesn't take long to say one word, okay? I want you to swap the word that you would do. You're not going to be asked to yell it out. You're not going to be embarrassed or anything like that, right? Just one word. Swap it with the person next to you that you think captures this part of the Bible, this first chapter. Go for it. Three seconds each. Okay, I said I wasn't going to get you to call out. Um, can I say the word is not creation? Okay, uh, not that I'm trying to embarrass anyone who might have said that. Uh, the word that captures this first part of the Bible actually is God. Uh, and the reason I say that is because he is the hero of this story. He's mentioned 35 times in this first section. He is the subject of almost every sentence. 
35, you know, I was saying to my wife, that's seven times five, right? If you're good on your seven times table. She thought that was stretching it a bit. But the point is, he is mentioned constantly in this chapter. And you discover all sorts of things about his nature. Uh, he exists before anything. That's where it starts. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. He's not created. He is there. God is there. And then creation is next. God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, God brought into existence the whole universe, which just highlights his extraordinary nature. Now, when you contemplate the vastness of our universe and think about the God who put that together, just like needlework. Uh, I looked up Google, so therefore it must be true. Um, and according to Google, there are over 400 billion stars in the universe. That's sort of a bit of a guesstimate, but that seems like a lot to me. Um, and we're talking about the God who put that together. Over 190 million galaxies, it's speculated that there are in our universe. And we aren't talking about the God who put all that together. And we only have the smallest glimpse of the vastness of that creation. What does that tell you about him? But then you push it to the other extreme. And as you look at nature and consider the, the intricacy uh, of a spider's web, the same God is the architect or subatomic sequencing when you go into the sort of the micro scale. We're talking about the God who oversees it all down to the fine detail. This is the creator God. Not surprising that the psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Because so they do. Moving on. We see that everything that's, that's made, that's created here in Genesis chapter 1, is created for a purpose. Uh, did you hear the formula? As you went through each day, God declares everything he made is good. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Until you get to verse 31 when we're talking about humanity and he says in the summary, and he says it's, it's very good. Now at this point, the, the idea of goodness is not so much a, uh, a moral statement, you know, good as opposed to degenerate or, or bad, but rather that it exists in line with the purpose that God has for it. It fulfills his purpose. In Isaiah 45, um, uh, the prophet here says this about the God who creates. Uh, he who created the heavens and the earth, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He didn't create it to be empty. He formed it to be inhabited, purposeful. Now, can I say all modern scientific endeavour stems from an understanding of the fact that God has created a world that is patent and is able to be explored. The presupposition is there. But the other thing about the, the good world that God creates is it, uh, it gives you an insight into his character and nature. Uh, he is a good God. Um, to look at creation is to know that he is generous. He is gracious he has integrity and he is loving that's evident now when you get to genesis 3 
you realise that there is a, um, a corruption of the world as people turn their back on God, and that obviously needs to be taken into account as we view creation. Uh, but here we see a God who creates with intention for the good of people and the good of uh, all that is created. We discover that God creates by his word. Uh, in Genesis, there is not one scientific formula. Do you understand that's not the point? The point is God creates everything from nothing by speaking. And God said. And it was so. And God said. And it was so. Now, can I say that in the ancient world, as well as the modern, this is such a contrast. Um, I remember when I was at Bible college studying the ancient Babylonian creation myth called the Enuma Elish. And in that... Um, narrative about how the world came to existence basically and I'm going a little bit from memory here but basically uh, all the gods in the ba Babylonian sort of uh, hierarchy uh, had a big fight one day right they got into a war with each other and uh, out of that chaos of the fighting between the gods right one of the gods chopped up with his sword one of the other gods heads and uh, that head rolled away and became the planet earth okay that's slightly different from Genesis chapter 1, uh, a different sort of approach. Now, when you come down to modern uh, sort of theories, like the Big Bang Theory, uh, what we have is a picture of science reaching into the past to explore the foundations of our world. And then it hits a wall and speculates about a big spontaneous event that, that was at the heart of it. Uh, that is such, such a contrast with the God of the Bible who creates with order and purpose. There is no randomness about creation. There is no accident. There is no speculation. God speaks and it happens. Now, the other thing, uh, which is a more subtle thing from here in Genesis chapter 1, but which is developed as the Bible goes on, is the fact that God sustains everything he's made. That is, he doesn't sort of uh, uh, build a sandcastle and then abandon it and see what happens. Uh, God actually superintends everything he has created. And if he was to step away from it for a, for a moment, it would just collapse and fall to the ground. Uh, Paul the Apostle in the New Testament in Acts 17, he's talking to uh, the Athenians who were multi-God believers and had different ideas about the origins of the earth and he's speaking to them about the creator God in Acts 17. And he says this, reflecting actually I think on Genesis chapter 1, he gives all men life and breath and everything else. All men life and breath and everything else. He doesn't create your lungs and you go away and work out how to breathe. This God of Genesis chapter 1 is superintending every breath you take at this point. You do not breathe in again unless God, in his sovereign, overruling power, enables that to occur. Your heart does not take another beat unless God, the architect, the one who sustains all things, keeps it going.
That's the God we're talking about here in Genesis chapter 1. Now, can I say there is so much more we could explore in terms of the nature of who God is from this chapter. But what I would like to do for just a few moments before we finish is to talk about the implications that flow from it. I want to contrast this view of the Bible with other worldviews and talk about what it means on the ground for us today. Because these, these opening chapters of the Bible, and particularly chapter 1, does uh, cut across both modern and ancient ideas of who we are and what the world's like. Now, we've already seen some of the, the insights or comparisons in terms of the ancient world and the way in which that functioned. Uh, all nations in the ancient world had a multiplicity of gods who all made their contribution in different ways to how the world functioned. Lots of gods with lots of different tasks, all cooperating or not in terms of how things, things function. Can I say Genesis 1 just blows this idea completely out of the water? Uh, totally. It would have been radical for its time when it first emerged. The point being made here is that there is one God and this God made everything and this God upholds everything. As you go through Genesis chapter 1 and 2, uh, if you're a Hebrew, Hebrew scholar, I'm not, uh, what you would pick up is there is a different name used for God in Genesis chapter 1 and then in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 it changes. Uh, so when you're um, dealing in Genesis chapter 1, 35 times, the word for God that is used is Elohim. When you get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, it changes to Yahweh. And uh, you may at this point be thinking, wonderful for that piece of Hebrew insight. Really appreciate that, Paul. Let me, let me tell you why I pass it on. The Elohim word for God in chapter 1 is the generic sort of name for God. When you get to Yahweh in chapter 2, verse 4... This is the personal name for God. The reason for the use of the generic name for God in chapter 1 is to make a point. How did the heavens and earth come to exist? 35 times. Because the God made it happen. The God, the God, the God, the God, the God, the God. I don't know how thick you are, but, uh, you know, do you get the point? You know, the God, the God, the God. There aren't many gods, there is the God, the God. He is the one who overrules absolutely everything. It is a studied reinforcement of the fact that there is one true living God. And his name is Yahweh, when you get to chapter 2, verse 4. It is deliberate. When you get to the uh, creation of the sun and the moon, it's interesting how that's reinforced in this chapter. Uh, did you hear how they were described? Lesser light, greater light. Less, less, not even named. In the ancient world, the sun and the moon were always named because they were always gods. The God creates the lesser light and the greater light. The whole thing is a powerful statement about the uniqueness of God. And just like Genesis cuts across ancient world views, it's the same for modern day views as well. Uh, religious views in our day. Uh, there are lots of people 
who think all religions are essentially the same. Uh, they all talk about God. They all talk about love. They're all ultimately paths to the same destination. But even a quick look and comparison of those religions shows that just doesn't hold water. Um, take uh, Hinduism. Many gods, all with their sphere of influence and a circular view of the way in which history operates. A belief in reincarnation based on how you live. Uh, that is so different. The God of the Bible, the one God, he is eternal. Uh, creation is not chaotic or random. People have value because God has given them that value. Uh, you ask a Hindu uh, the difference between Stephen George and a snail, uh, they'll say, man, not much really. Uh, you know, it, it just depends on choices that were made previously. Or take Buddhism, uh, for example. And this, this is apparently the fastest growing religion in Australia, although bear in mind it's operating on a very low base. Uh, so it's still a very small influence in our culture. But Buddhists, they think there is no God and that you get enlightenment through escaping the physical world. That is, you need to reject pleasure in order to soar. Now, how different is that from what we read here in Genesis chapter 1? The Bible says God is good. He made a good world to be enjoyed, a world full of wonder and beauty that reflects his very nature. And the Bible says pleasure is good. How different. And when you measure against modern non-religious worldviews, the contrasts are just as startling. Uh, take the, the, the recent upsurge in atheism, uh, the belief that there is no God. It's been made popular in recent years by um, scholars like Hitchens and Dawkins and Lawrence Krauss who's recently visited Australia uh, and spoken at different things. And according to this view, Human beings are just random collations and atoms that are caught up in the slipstream of a meaningless universe. Uh, that's basically the understanding of who we are. One author put it like this and said, we just are, for a little while anyway, and then we aren't. Then we aren't. Uh, Sue and I went to the funeral of uh, a woman we'd known probably for around 35 years. Uh, we went to that in January, I think it was, this year. And uh, at that funeral, uh, we, it was explained the view of our friend in terms of thinking about death and life. And her view essentially was that she would live on through her children. Uh, that's the way in which she would, she would have succession or impact. And that she, her, one of her requests was that her ashes would be taken and deposited back at the same spot where she was born to complete the circle of life. Okay. Now understand you're hearing Lion King theology at this point. Um, that's exactly what is going on here. But it's a, it's a product of an atheistic worldview of thinking. Now how different is that from what we see here in Genesis chapter 1? The God who creates everything gives meaning and purpose. Uh, humanity is the pinnacle of his created intentions for this world. And we'll come back to that again next week to see our purposes in God's creation. We're, we're made for a relationship with God as well as with one another.
And there are lots of other worldviews we could critique. Uh, environmentalism, uh, where people actually get their meaning and intention in life from the created order around them. How different from what the Bible says. Um, God has created this world. It, it, in many respects, reflects his created nature, but he's not caught in this world. He's mirrored in it, but he's not in creation itself. And it's God who gives creation its value and its purpose. Or maybe I think the, the worldview or the religion that dominates Western countries like Australia and how this chapter critiques that. Now I'm talking about materialism or hedonism. That is, on this worldview, the goal of life becomes the acquisition of stuff or experiences. A worldview that really does dominantly, I think, uh, provide the insight into the way in which Australians think about their lives. We had an election back in May. What were the big issues that gripped the hearts of Australians? Well, certainly I can tell you what was in the, the news at that point. The issues were franking credits. Uh, they were home ownership, superannuation, negative gearing, living wage. And you hear the drumbeat. It's all about us and it's all about our standard of living. Uh, that, I think, points us to the very heart of what makes us tick. Hear how Genesis critiques that worldview? See, according to that materialistic, hedonistic worldview, we get our meaning from what we own or experience. We get our meaning from creation. That gives us a sense of intention and purpose. Rather than from the creator who made us to actually have a role in superintending creation. See how it's all the wrong way around? Uh, creation doesn't tell us who we are. God does. And then we operate in this world according to his intentions. It critiques every worldview that you can possibly come across. So let me try and drag this together. What does it mean to believe in the God who created everything? Now, I do want to say it will, it will have implications for a worldview that's based on uh, an atheistic, biological, evolutionary view of the universe. It, it will have things to speak into that space. But actually, I think it says much more essential things uh, for us and about how we live in this world. See, to believe in the creator God is very humbling. To know who he is and to know he has made you. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm chapter 8. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, isn't that interesting, describing um, uh, the work of the heavens, the creation of the heavens like needlework? Isn't that an interesting picture? of God and his power. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Now, it puts you in your place, doesn't it? But also it reminds you you have an accountability. That is, 
God is the owner of this universe and this world. And we live here as sort of uh, subtenants in his created order. And if you've ever rented a property, you know that it's uh, foolish to ignore the landlord's intentions uh, because you'll get yourself in trouble every time. Uh, God is the owner of all creation and we're not free to squat on our own terms. That isn't our sort of choice. We have responsibility. But here's the point I want to finish on. That when you come here to Genesis chapter 1, what you discover is that this is a God you can trust. It's a God you can trust. Uh, I've got a few grandchildren who come to this church and uh, one of them, the male one, uh, he, he was around at our place, I reckon about six months ago. Now, you don't know our house. We have a wooden staircase that goes upstairs. It's quite steep. Ten wooden stairs to the landing, about eight to the second landing. goes like that. Now, I want to confess here, I'm a helicopter grandparent. Right? I hover around worried for my grandchildren, especially around those stairs. Right? Uh, their parents less worried about the stairs than I am, worrying grandparent. All right? So uh, this grandson decided to go upstairs. So I was hovering around at the bottom of the stairs like a good grandparent does. Okay? And this, uh, this grandson came down to the first landing, down eight stairs, ten to go, quite steep, and he saw me at the bottom of the stairs. And he looked at me and he smiled and he did something he has never done before. Right? He took two steps and threw himself off the landing. <laughs> it all looked like this in his face. Uh, you know. Now, you know the reason he did that? Right? He thought I had the capacity to catch him. Right? <laughs> but I was strong enough to do it. And, uh, and the second thing is he thought I, I had the sort of appropriate disposition towards him to want to do it. Uh, you know, that, that I loved him and wouldn't just go, ha, 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 and step out of the way, you know. Um, <laughs> Both those things, you know, and just in case you're worried, I did actually catch him, right? Which is why he happens to be here today, right? Uh, so we're okay. Now, what I want to say is that when you're confronted with the God of the Bible, what you see is a God who is extraordinarily powerful here in Genesis chapter 1, but amazingly gracious and loving and good. And that that is woven into the very fabric of this first part of the Bible, his very nature. Now, of course, the reality is, uh, when you work through the storyline of the Bible, you get to Genesis chapter 3 and you see that people turn their back on God and they want to be God themselves, run life their own way. But then the amazing thing is that the whole storyline of the Bible is about a God who doesn't just say, you know, stuff them. I think I'll go and create another universe and world over here. He doesn't do that. He persistently, graciously continues to reach out to humanity to turn their back on him, to you and to me. And the storyline of the Bible culminates with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, God personally reaching out into our world uh, to embrace us. Uh, to die for us, to rise from the dead, to give us life and hope and restored relationship with him. Colossians chapter 1 expresses it this way, speaking about Jesus. All things were created through Jesus and in him all things hold together. 
Now, this is a good God who through his son, through whom everything was made, is redeeming people back to himself to enjoy them forever. That's the God of Genesis chapter 1. Friends, Genesis introduces us to a God who has awesome and unimaginable capacity that I can't even get close to getting my head around. What an extraordinary God. But friends, he is a God that you can trust. And you can trust with your life. This is the God of Genesis chapter 1. Friends, can I pray for us? I think we might have Q&A, depending on whether I haven't gone too long. We'll see how we go. Let uh, Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a wonderfully gracious, merciful and kind God. Uh, Father, we pray that our minds and hearts will just be enlarged as we think about who you are, think about your, your generosity towards us, think about your extended mercy throughout the history of this world as you call people back to yourself through your son. Uh, Father, we pray that, that we'll just be blown away by your, your very nature and persistence and unwarranted mercy. And Father, we, we ask that those truths will, will find their way into every crevice of our lives because we know that uh, to live as integrated creatures in relationship with you uh, requires a lifetime of effort and thinking and repentance and change. Therefore, Father, we pray you'll keep changing us so that we live as those you've made for relationship with you and as your ambassadors in this world. Father, we pray it. In Jesus' name, amen.